Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome the Scottish author Martin McInnes to the Sustainability Agenda. Martin lives in Edinburgh, Scotland. His debut novel, Infinite Ground, won the Somerset Maughan Award. His second novel, Gathering Evidence, led to his inclusion in the National Centre for Writing, British Council's list of 10 writers shaping the UK's future. His acclaimed third novel, In Ascension, was published in February 2023. Thank you very much, Martin, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Uh, thank you, Fergal. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to you today, Martin, about your latest fabulous book. Uh, wonderful uh, and uh, very thought-provoking and moving, really. Um, and also uh, get a, a sense of your thoughts, your feelings about contemporary literature and how it's facing up to or dealing with the, some of the environmental and climate crises that we're facing and, and whether it, it, it ought to and, and so forth. But before we, 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 we dive in, can you just tell us a little bit about your background, Martin, and your interests and so forth? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm from Inverness in the Highlands of Scotland. My parents uh, both have farming backgrounds. Um, I, I studied literature at university and I think it was, it was really during my undergraduate degree that I decided um, everything I want to do uh, really involves writing, writing uh, fiction. So I haven't really had any kind of career I've, I've, um, outside of writing. I've, I've worked a series of low-paid uh, part-time jobs to support my writing. And I've spent an inordinate amount of time in public libraries reading, researching, writing. Um, I published my first novel, Infinite Grounds, in 2016. Um, I've published uh, two more since then. Everything I write, I think, is about the relationship between the human and the extra-human. And I'm sure we'll get into that topic uh, as, we, as we go on. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, at the heart of it all. So I, um, we're, we're, I always like to try and set the tone a little bit or get the lay of the land because we're facing mm. such a, a messy, uh, many, many interlocked social, economic, environmental challenges right now. And um, people have various concerns and worries. I'm just wondering what, what is on your mind about the current environmental situation? What worries you the most? Um, I mean, I think the word like messy and interconnected uh, you used there really sum up where I feel there just seems to be an intractability about things at the moment, which is, you know, which is so incredibly frustrating. Um, I don't know why more radical changes aren't, aren't being made such as 
um, I don't know, off the top of my head, making illegal um, cattle farming or use of private vehicles in cities and rationing, you know, air transport, that kind of thing. I'd love to see those kind of changes happening. Nothing really seems to be happening. I, I think um, we really do kind of seem to be in denial as a as a, a species about um, the situation. But specifically, I think one of my biggest fears about the climate crises is um, the potential for nonlinear effects. So um, computer modeling uh, can predict a lot. Um, so IPC, uh, IPCC can say specific things about um, predicted effects with uh, you know, certain um, temperature increases, uh, seawater rising. But there's things that we just can't predict at all. Um, so maybe a very small change could lead to really drastic effects. Um, and yeah, so the potential for kind of cascading exponential nonlinear um, disasters, um, you know, from maybe the loss of one species uh, or any any other relatively small change leading to changes that we, we can't even imagine. So that's one of my fears. Absolutely. And something I've talked a lot about on this podcast. To what extent did you have to do, uh, as you say, spend a lot of time in a library looking at reading about the environmental issues uh, in preparation for In Ascension? It's hard to sort of separate out reading I do, as it were, for myself and then research for a novel because I'm writing about what interests me anyway. So everything is kind of overlapping. Um, as regarding specific environmental research for In Ascension, I don't think I did too much of that. I mean, I, I read a lot of like cellular theory. Um, people like Nick Lane were, were important. Um, uh, other other scientists, um, Lynn Margulis, for instance. But I think key texts for me, going back a bit longer, are things like The Diversity of Life by E.O. Wilson um, back in the early 2000s. And all that kind of stuff led into um, the kind of writing I wanted to do and... Uh, so that was kind of research I was doing um, for a kind of undefined project, which led to my first novel, Infinite Ground. And since then, I've been reading similar stuff. But I, I didn't do too much specific environmental reading for In Ascension, per se. Yeah, no, very interesting. And I, I guess um, if you what, – what would you say just <laughs> – I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but, you know, what, what, what is the book about? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so – I guess very briefly, I mean, various ways of answering what a book is about. In, in terms of plot, it's about a marine biologist. It's about her relationship with her family and her relationship with um, non-human entities as well, from the very small to the very large. So she's a marine biologist and she studies archaea and algae. Um, her research ultimately uh, leads her to working on a space food program, which takes her outside of the planet. So I'm looking at scale, I suppose, with this novel very small um, and the astronomical and where the human fits in next to this. I'm also, as I'm always interested in, um, kind of decentering the human um, in, uh, in the worlds that I write about, not in a way to denigrate the human, but just to show the human as more tangled up in other entities, something I, I, I think I don't really see so much of in contemporary English language fiction, so those are some of the things I'm trying to write about um, anyway in, uh, in Ascension. Does that, does that kind of make sense? No, absolutely, absolutely. I, and, and as you say, it's at the heart of this, there's this, uh, I, I guess, scale, you know, mm. from the underwater 
to space travel. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess um, the underwater, the, the, the marine, I guess in, in some sense, uh, where we came from and space, depending on um, your point of view on this, may be um, one of our possible futures. So that, that's one of the reasons, I suppose, for, uh, for looking at those two locations. Yes, and, and uh, at the, I guess at the heart of the, the space uh, story, in a way, is technology and change and, and the possibilities. Mm. And, and, and in, in a way, uh, you know, the underwater is, is, is so primal in many ways, this pulsing with mm. this ancient life. Yes, yeah, very much. Um, and yeah, I, I think this is, this sounds like so banal as to be maybe not worthy of stating, but when we're, when we're on land and walking through merely the air, it's easier to pretend we're walking through a vacuum, despite the fact that we're obviously not. Whereas when we're in the water, um, we're very much aware of, uh, the environment around us. So that, that's another simple reason for me wanting to write about, um, water. Yeah. Well, I suppose in some sense, the, uh, progress of space travel and so forth, very related to uh, technology and a particular, I suppose, approach, the technology, instrumental thinking, uh, logic uh, and so forth. And at the same time, the book is, is saturated as well with a kind of sense of wonder, uh, a very different way of relating to the world around us. Yes. And yeah. they, they kind of stand in, 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 in a kind of contrasting relationship in some sense. Hmm. Yeah, so I would generally agree with what you've just said, um, although I would put a caveat, I guess, at the start of the answer to that, which would be I think wonder is common to scientific inquiry as well as to novel writing, for instance. Um, this, this curiosity yes. to uh, investigate, um, and I think, you know, scientific writing has a, obviously a, a kind of rigour and objectivity about it, but often underneath that there are personalities, maybe a bit like my protagonist, who from childhood um, finds uh, a real sense of beauty and hope in the world outside of herself and is kind of pursuing this through science. Um, but that, that's interesting. I'm just kind of mulling over what you've just said. Um, so the the wonder underneath everything in, in, in the novel, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, I, however much I read or, or think, this is maybe a limitation of my mind, but I can't get away from those kind of original childhood questions that we have, like, what is the universe? Why is there something rather than nothing? Um, how far does our ignorance stretch? You know, what is the universe? Those sort of huge, unanswerable questions. So for whatever reason, they haven't left me. Maybe I haven't grown up properly, but that's always a part of my writing. And that makes everyday life more interesting to me that I've got this... Um, this kind of background of perhaps unanswerable questions. So that, that energizes me thinking about them as well as thinking about everything else that's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting because I suppose it's a critique that has been made that we kind of sleepwalking to mm. destruction and, you know, the, the yeah. magic in, in the, in the world around us, I suppose that it's mm. something we take for granted. It's a bit simple. It's a bit basic or something like that. There are, mm -hmm. you know, a, 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 as well as increasing, you know, industrialization and, you know, um, yes. technology, technology enhanced experiences, you know, for so many, uh, particularly young people, the, you know, big mm -hmm. part of their lives is, you know, online and for everybody really, but, um, you know, just yes. being in a forest or being underwater, 
and just just the presence you know that that sense is is something that's that's arguably being lost in industrial civilization yeah. at least I completely agree. And it, it's something I've often heard when people report their experiences of uh, virtual reality is like the most amazing part of virtual reality is when you take your headset off and, <laughs> and suddenly, yeah. you know, like the world, the real world around you is so like unfathomably rich and, and clear and incredible. And sadly, that kind of sensibility doesn't seem to last so much so long. But I thought that was like an interesting and ironic um effect of virtual reality and you you also hear that i don't know if you've heard about this fergal but you know the 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 kind of overview effect that uh, astronauts often report you know like looking back on the whole earth and um and having a kind of i don't know almost spiritual epiphany when outside the earth and changing how they feel and then behave when they return to earth have have you heard of that i I don't know very much about it but I, i guess there's also it seems to me the kind of physiological aspects of vision is just on a simple level. Mm. You're staring at a screen. You've got this very narrow, mm. it's not just staring at a screen, but you know, living in cities or so forth, you know, the peripheral vision, which is a narrow focused vision. You know, when you're looking at just, you're, you're looking at a much broader panoply. I think there are, mm. you know, different impacts, emotional impacts, but also neurological impacts as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you used an interesting word earlier, I think in, in, uh, the last question we we're talking about use the word sleepwalking i think anything we can do to wake up a little more um is valuable and let's look at ways we can do that um i mentioned the overview effect because i'd heard about um simulations of uh going into space which have had i think interesting effects on people's outlook when they when they come back from that so i agree that um people are too kind of locked into digital um kind of hubs like i don't have a smartphone i only got wi-fi recently for work when I had to um, not everyone kind of forward to um, disengage digitally um, like that but I think there is a balance yeah this question of technology is an interesting one isn't it because um, yeah. you know it's so pervasive now and of course it's it's become so topical now with this uh, these kind of AI breakthroughs our relationship with technology and uh, I guess when it comes to climate as well there's uh, a very strong uh, strain of what you might call uh, techno-utopianism that technology will save us. And of course, there, there are myriad ways of uh, conceiving our current situation that allow us not to have to do anything <laughs> and not to have to make hard decisions and changes. And one of those, of course, is, you know, the, the power of technology and technology will save us. And there's no doubt that, you know, you can envisage some technological breakthroughs that would change things very, very significantly. So, yeah, I think we're probably on the same page. Um, I'm guessing that, yeah, like expecting some kind of techno utopianism to save us from our situation is um, like so foolhardy. I think like, obviously we can't do that. And, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in um, environmental matters at all. I'm, I'm just, an, uh, I'm, a, I'm a novelist and an enthusiast of a, of a approaching um, kind of the, the human and the environmental in a certain way through fiction. But um, obviously, I, I hear a lot of criticism of technologies such as carbon capture, right? Um, yes. And how putting money into this 
might um, might be the worst possible thing to do. It allows people to think, actually, we don't need to change our behaviour. We can continue with the same consumerist, um, mass-polluting society. Um, so I wouldn't give up on some potential uh, technological, um, how to put it, um, additions to uh, to what we're doing. Um, but I certainly wouldn't see it as a, 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 a solution on its own. But at the same time, I wouldn't necessarily give up all funding on those things. I don't know what what's your your, your perspective on that. Yeah, um, no, I, 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 I absolutely. I mean, you, you do read uh, from time to time. I read the you know breakthroughs that they've been able to use iron to create these high impact batteries that last much longer. You know that are really really different. You know performance capacities and so forth. And you think, yeah, okay. you know that that that's that's that sounds brilliant. And, and why not? We have extraordinary technologies and there's no reason why we, we you know, wouldn't be able to you know uh, somehow generate some interesting unexpected but yes I think you know the, we, the, the, there are very powerful structures in the world you know Silicon Valley uh, mm-hmm. you know the, the whole philanthro capitalism kind of model uh, you know the very powerful people who believe this as well there's a lot of ideology there as well they genuinely believe technology is the, the future and so forth. I would be wary of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but I think there are a lot of other kinds of changes that we need to be thinking about as well. I just think we're so embedded in this world, it's technology world uh, as well. It's, uh, it's, it's quite a challenging uh, proposition, but um, you do you, you do see people who and and, and you know organisations that that that. that Fall back on this, you know, uh, idea that you know technology will save us, and um, it's these these as you say these other questions that you know our relationship to the natural world, the you know excess consumption patterns, mm. you know industrial civilization, the kind of spiritual underpinnings or metaphysical underpinnings our relationship to the world are, are really really important. Mm. You know, if we are somehow in this world of urgency of environmental crises of existential problems that have to be solved you know immediately it doesn't really give time to reflect and consider and you know and 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 really and and bring in a wider range of voices as well because the kinds of people who are developing the technologies the funding of the technologies the you know the actors there this is a it's a very centralized you know say oligarchic approach which is mm-hmm. you know i don't think uh really the way forward yeah i mean, I, I completely I, I couldn't i completely agree with you i couldn't put that better um yes yeah, like we were coming back to that word kind of the messiness and intractability of things yeah it's it is frustrating yeah i completely agree now you said in an interview or if you wrote that climate disaster has been uh talking about that the refusal to accept human integration in the natural world and I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, because it, it's, uh, well, there's a, a lot of people thinking about, I have been historically, you know, the question of, 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 you know, of our relationship to the world. And, you know, I guess yeah. the, the, uh, the Descartian uh, kind of separation of the mm. scientific revolution. Yeah, yeah. And these, all these kind of ways of how it's evolved, really, our, our, our way of thinking about, our way of being, shall we say, in the world. I'm just wondering what it is that, it, you know, you're getting at there and what are some of the possibilities yeah. you think about? Yeah, yeah. So I do think about this a lot. Um, I guess, first of all, I would say, um, so I wrote that in a, an email to my editor a couple of years ago, I think when I was still writing the book, and and then he suggested we use it in a 
kind of author's foreword to one of the advanced one of the advanced reading edition uh, editions of the book. And I kind of regret that now. Um, I'm I'm not a nonfiction writer. Um, the book isn't a polemic, and I kind of do my thinking when I'm writing. Um, so for me to kind of sum up in a couple of paragraphs yes. what the book's doing or what I'm trying to do here, it's it's really difficult. And I think I can come across sometimes as a little naive in doing that. Um, I have had a bit of pushback from um, like the way I phrased this. It's maybe not the most careful phrasing. So I am. I mean, I will. I will go into this, um, but at the same time, I'm slightly skeptical about my um, expressiveness, my ability to be articulate about this. It's so important to me um, this issue, Fergal, and it has been like for as long as I can remember. I, I was kind of I was brought up. I'm not saying this is my parents' fault or anything. But I was brought up thinking that myself and my kind, like my my species, humans were kind of dropped onto an alien planet, dropped onto an Earth, and that we have a kind of privileged position in regards to everything else outside of us, almost to the extent that we are made of different stuff. So you have kind of human matter, and then you have everything else. And um, I, obviously, I'm only talking about the society in which I've been brought up, but I, I continue to see that. Um, obviously, the planet is a closed system, um, everything within it is essentially re- recombinant matter. And it took me a long time and, and a lot of reading to really come around to that on an elemental level. So I wish I had been um, more privy to that kind of thinking as a child. That's the kind of thing I mean by human integration in the natural world. Integration is probably the wrong word. Um, what else do we Entanglement, enmeshment. Yes, um, and yes. something like that. Yes. I don't know. What would you think would be a better term? Yeah, no, I think that's 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 very interesting. I, I, I think what you said at the beginning as well about the idea of um, you know uh, try, uh, articulating or, 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 mm. or leaning towards giving some kind of commentary, as it were, on on your work. Once somebody asked Robert Schumann to explain the meaning of a certain piece of music he had just played in the piano, what Robert Schumann did was sit back at the piano and play the piece of music again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right if if there is a more eloquent way of saying what the book is that would be the book <laughs> yeah you know? yeah no no but at the same time you have to talk about it i, I get that and I, I do need you want you want readers and you want people to talk about these issues so like i do need to try um yeah so i mean it, it touches on a topic that's important here i think this question of you know what what we could hope for from literature and how literature mm-hmm. is uh, how well it's doing, I suppose, in terms of uh, dealing with, uh, covering, talking about, and there's other things we could say, about the environmental issues and climate issues that we're, we're facing and so forth. And yeah. I suppose, you know, the, the, the old uh, maxim about, you know, if you want to send a message, uh, use Western Union or something like that, you know, or the expectations that literature, you know, would, would uh, I suppose, motivate us to change our behavior are they are they uh, appropriate? Is that a kind of fancy? Are you just going to get a kind of a hectoring style of, of, of book? Um, I mean, this is a vast question. There's like so much we could talk about here. Um, I guess, like first of all, and more briefly, um, I guess I'd think about books like I mean, I'm sure you've read this. I don't know if you've even spoken to him about it, but um, Kim Stanley Robinson and yes. uh, Ministry for the Future. Yes. Um, so, I mean, this is this is someone who's actually meeting with heads of state and 
has ideas about how to change economics, make um, structural changes. So that's a really unusually direct way of literature trying to change the world, right? Yes. Um, but there's not many Kim Stanley Robinsons around. Um, there's there's another writer, Jonathan Ledgard, uh, L-E-D-G-A-R-D. Who, you, you know his stuff? Yeah. He's doing interesting stuff just now. And again, ambitious, like big-scale stuff, um, talking to... Um, people who have the resources to actually make um, make some big changes as well. So I guess they're, I don't know if, what you think, but from my perspective, they're kind of outliers in, um, in literature and in fiction because they're so directly trying to change things. Um, that is way, way outside of my wheelhouse. Um, what I can say is I, I think that um, fiction does have a role in, uh, in, let me try and choose my word carefully, I was going to say in addressing the crisis, I think in, let's just say that I think the extent to which literary fiction in English certainly ignores the crisis is completely reprehensible. Yes. I don't know. Like, yes. what do you think about that? Is that too strong? Um, is there something unique or, or very distinctive about the particular situation we're facing that would make it challenging or particularly challenging to deal with, you know, the environmental, uh, to deal with these issues. Yeah. And that's an interesting that's question, right. I suppose, and whether or not even, mm. you know, if it were particularly challenging, we can talk about, you know, some of the ideas he has there about why it would be, mm-hmm. you know, um, but, you know, the, the role of the avant-garde, for example. I- yeah, um, I guess we're really getting to the crux of things now. I mean, I love uh, Gosh's book. I, mean, I reread that recently and I've, you know, even taken – note of a few um statements we could maybe like quote at, at some point yeah. um but i guess there's a lot in what you just said there fergal that i'd like to respond to i think whenever you hear the words avant-garde yeah. in literature um <laughs> publishers certainly run away yes <laughs> um, like the fact that I've, I've been called an experimental writer with my second novel i mean my, my publishers would probably be I've been happier if no one had reviewed it than if a reviewer had called it experimental, <laughs> even if they meant it generously. Kiss of death, so, kiss of death, yeah. Exactly, but I mean, you have to communicate. You yes. want readers. You don't just want your, your work to be discussed in, in small groups. Um, and so I'm, I'm just quickly scanning through my, uh, taking a couple of notes from, gosh, there's one sentence here from him. Within the mansion of serious fiction, no one will speak of how the continents were created. So I love that. I, um, I love his kind of analysis of what fiction is and what it thinks it can do at, at the moment. Um, from my perspective, I don't see how a popular novel can't do both things. Yeah. yeah. Can't um, have... Is there in the sense that he raises some questions about the the fact that it's not an individual issue; it's a kind of uh, mm-hmm. mass human uh, challenge, yes. and and so forth. To say that there's certain structural challenges that make it difficult, yes. and I guess in some sense, writers over time have responded to that in coming up with different forms, different ways of writing. I mm-hmm. suppose that's in that way, thinking about the avant-garde is, is coming up with maybe different structures, different, you know, ways. Yeah, of yeah, that's interesting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, off the top of my head, maybe we can look at, um, say, modernist writers and, and their response to world wars. And yes. how they, I guess they would describe people like Wolf um, as uh, avant-garde writers and responding to what's happening. And, I mean, I'm not aware of any comparable modern reaction to events yes. um, on that kind of scale. 
Um, but Gosh's point about how do we address something that, that is as all-encompassing as the whole world? Like how that is difficult to get a perspective on because you're inside it. Um, how do you represent that in a 300-page book um, that has a plot and relatable characters? This is a this is something we need to respond to. And I guess you're asking me kind of implicitly, how might one do this? Um, obviously, I don't know. Um, I'd, I'd love to read those books, and I, I want to keep trying to write them. Um, my three novels have become slight, slightly more readable. I mean, that's not a very eloquent way of putting it. They've become more accessible as I'm writing, not um, deliberately, but it, it's so interesting um, in making some of the changes I've done uh, in my third novel, I mean, I'm never going to be a, a best-selling writer, but I have many more readers now than I ever had before, even though I'm still writing about human entanglement, human and the extra human, um, all of those things. So I'm still trying to write about this issue um, without really looking at avant-garde forms. Yeah, no, it's just kind of, uh, I suppose, just responding to some of the ideas in, 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 in mm. Marsh's book. And I guess you can kind of, you, you know, think about these things in terms of tropes and so forth. So often, for example, uh, you know, uh, serious themes can be smuggled in, as it were, or or that, you know, mixed up with, you know, the detective, uh, you know, uh, uh, tropes, as it were, or, or, or science fiction. And you can see, you know, the, the the possibilities of science fiction, the vastness of it, yes. possibilities of you know the future, and I suppose that's something as well that's kind of ties in with with, with your book as well as to what extent you know uh, where do you situate yourself in time with respect to the developments, the technological developments, I suppose, if there are sci-fi elements, you know, people who have expectations, I suppose, as to where we're situated in time and, and, and what kinds of technologies or ways of thinking that are pervasive. Yeah, so I, I like the idea of, like, blending genres and, inverted commas, literary fiction. Um, I think the ghettoizing of science fiction, as Gosh says in his book, is um, is kind of insulting, and and also this um, the creation of the subgenre of uh, climate fiction, um, you know, putting climate fiction in next to science fiction. Sci-fi is that what they call it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just kind of laughable, isn't it? And also th- this idea that realism is books which ignore the climate crisis. So, so anything that's not doing that is somehow not realistic. I mean, that's that's completely the wrong way round, isn't it? Yes. Um, but um, we, I mean. I mentioned Wolf. I mean, uh, a little, a little bit ago, and and Wolf's writing. I mean, there was really Wolf, Wolf that got me um, really excited about the possibilities of writing fiction. I, I mean, I this might sound ridiculous, but I kind of see Wolf as like a proto science fiction writer, and I know that Kim Stanley Robinson actually does as well. Um, the way that she uses non-human time scales, whether by zooming in on one moment, making it last an inordinately long time, or looking at much bigger scales of time, for instance, in Orlando or in the waves or a section into in the lighthouse called Time Passes. So I think there's a potential in what she's doing for a more entangled kind of literature. And I guess Wolf was avant-garde in the sense that she was working with new structures, but it's not as if she doesn't have readers as well. So there's there's something positive there, I think. But yeah, why, I mean, why not talk about the creation of the continent's in a novel that also looks at the relationship between a family over generations or something, why not blend all those things? I would, 
I'd love to see much more of that in um, in mainstream publishing. I mean, that that's maybe a very naive thing for me to say. Yes, well, you, you, you've used that <coughs> well, two, two words there, I suppose, mainstream and publishing. And yeah, you know, yeah. I, I talked about, uh, interviewed Hans Ulrich Obrist, who's the who, who, who's a uh, at the Serpentine Gallery, and he's a curator, mm. but very interested in in uh, environmental issues. And this question, which you've got to uh, address, is to what extent are the possibilities of art to deal with the environmental questions circumscribed by the fact that you know the, the people who are buying the art are you know at the heart of the problem in many ways, or or certainly a significant part of the question, um, and indeed you know the, the financialization of the art world, you know, uh, and mm-hmm. so forth. And I suppose there's a, a similar question to be asked about uh, contemporary publishing. Yeah, yeah. I guess no one wants to be like feel that they're being hectored and what they're reading as well. And maybe what we're calling realism is actually um, status quo and reinforcing escapism, to be honest. Um, no, it's, it's a huge question and an important question. Um, can we really expect um, publishing to move away from popular trends and start, you know, funding other kinds of writing? I don't know. One of the things I'd love to see is um, better awareness of literature and translation, uh, in, certainly in, in Britain. Um, so stories that are coming from other places. Um, I think, obviously, I'm, I'm talking from um, an Anglo perspective. This is society I've been brought up in, and this is a society which historically, imperially, is responsible for um, a lot of the situation we're in. So I, I'd like to see the promotion of different kinds of stories from uh from different places and yeah so more focus on translated literature would be a great thing um i don't know what, what you think about that yeah no absolutely and um that's uh still a, a kind of challenging area to fund i think and uh yeah 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 um the um i guess you know that there are in, in some sense there's a question about what can we seriously expect or ask what are the questions we could ask about literature and i guess one of one of the uh while doing the podcast you just come across such a wide i i've come across such a wide range of perspectives on what's happening environmentally and in the world Mm -hmm. you know there are certain dominant narratives shall we say yeah yeah interesting they you know don't help uh, deal with sustainability yeah, and yeah. so forth. And I'm just wondering, you know, yeah. and again, it's this question you say, we're, we're so deeply embedded in it, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of contemporary, I mean, again, it's cliched contemporary consumer society and, you know, uh, capitalism and so forth. Um, maybe there's more potential there for, for works that can challenge that and, and maybe you know satire and irony and humor and yeah. um yeah like if you told me that someone like one of the best books about the climate crisis would be written in the style of pg woodhouse as it you know i can maybe say about one of Nez's new book i wouldn't have thought that was possible but yeah he absolutely skewers it and it, it's also a really beautiful book in lots of ways i think um yeah so if people are, people want to want to enjoy the fiction that they read right and I don't know, um, maybe one of the problems in publishing just now is this thought that 
um, who's going to want to read doom and gloom about the climate or something in, in fiction? But I, I find that if that is the case, that's so incredibly patronizing and disappointing. This idea that um, maybe maybe trying to do something in fiction which is not as human-centered as fiction currently is, is like dangerous or miserablest or something. I think the opposite should be the case. And for me anyway, life is so much more beautiful and radiant and um, surprising and um, able to surprise. Sorry, I've repeated myself there, surprising, able to surprise. Um, but the world is um, much richer when we look at it from a slightly less um, anthropocentric perspective. And I'd like, I'd love to see more of this in fiction. Um, so I guess yeah, what I'm trying to say here is looking at these issues doesn't have to be miserableist. It could be joyous. And th there are like hints of it in parts of science fiction and people like Wolf, this, you know, moving perspectives from, I'm, I'm talking about Wolf here and to the lighthouse, moving in perspective from Mrs. Ramsey and her consciousness to suddenly a world in which her death can, you know, only merits um, one line in parenthesis. The collision between those two things, I will never forget when I read that. Um, and when I put the book down and walked outside, I was, I felt so much more alive to everything that was going on around me, um, human or, or non-human. And literature can do that in a way that validates and endorses life. So I'm guessing that, and as someone who's worked in, in bookshops before as well and knows a little bit about the publishing industry, part of the reason we're not seeing um, more diffuse and varied philosophies um, in mainstream fiction is that publishers are worried they're going to be miserablest and no one wants to read this on their way to work or whatever. I find that incredibly patronising and, and lazy if that is the case. And there is you know, legitimately this question about, you know, how do you deal with these, you know, existential questions? And, you know, there's been a lot of uh, shouting. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, uh, terror, really, about about mm -hmm. things, which, you know, has, has been diffused as well. And certain, you know, hasn't always been, it's been pushed under the carpet, but then it comes out and, the, the, you know, the reports, this there's a kind of drumbeat of, uh, you know, of, of terror that, that we've three years left or five years left or seven headline relentlessly you know uh beating on these 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 kinds of issues that yeah. understandably it's it's a bit overwhelming and i guess the, mm. the kind of communication or you know writing that takes that we're talking about here in literature is in in, in so embedded in a world of communications where the, the mm. dominant uh, approach to these issues uh, if they're addressed at all yeah um and I guess what I'd, what I'd love to see is um, more creativity in perspectives and the way we put across um, perspectives on space and time in fiction. Does that does that make sense? Yes, yes, absolutely. Like, um, like I've been using this word uh, anthropocentric and and this like, this idea of like decentering the human, which I'm which I'm interested in exploring in a positive way. I mean, that might sound absurd. I mean, how you can have a novel without humans? I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying we need to write a novel from the perspective of an ant or an elephant or something. I mean, that would be itself, in itself kind of reductionist, right? It would be a kind of like cos animal cosplay. But I, I, I just think, I mean, if you read, I don't know, 
a list of um, lit, you know most popular or most um, prized literary fiction in Britain in the last twenty years. Um, there's a it's a very domestic world. Yes. Um, and probably in which, in, and probably in America too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in which it's almost I don't recognize the world that's written that the world that's being presented. It's as if they're in a kind of a dome or a force field in, in which the only things that exist are um, humans and human ob- and human made objects. So I'm, I'm, all I'm advocating really is a world with more encounters between humans and other things. I think I want to see, and this is kind of what I'm trying to do when I'm writing. I want to see more porosity um, in uh, the relationship between the human and the non-human, more crossovers, more leakiness, more interconnectedness, rather than having a humanity which is independent, autonomous, sealed off, safe from, separate, however you want to put it. I don't see um, the world as I experience it enough in in fiction in that respect. I, um, I I think we're always in a process of merging into the environment and taking on parts of the environment, parts of um, the non-human world. Um, this is not something that just happens to us like in illness or in death. I think that this is, this is how we, we, um, how we function day to day. And I think there should be a kind of interesting um, vulnerability in how we, how we portray characters in the world. Um, but this, I don't see this as happening. And What's the relevance of this to the climate crisis and the responsibility? I think if more of us were writing about the world in this way, I think oh, this is maybe a reach, and I'm obviously generalizing very broadly, but maybe we, we could have a more urgent and robust challenge to the status quo. Um, I think, yeah, something we were talking about by email was Daisy Hildyard, who's doing this, I think, in a really interesting voice that um, uh, kind of moves between fiction and nonfiction. So in uh, the second body, which for me was like a transformative and like key text about um, the climate crisis and uh, exactly that issue of the human in relation to the non-human um, and her, her novel from last year, Emergency, which is um, written in a similar kind of voice, um, but is, is, is very much sort of um, classed as a novel. So there are, there are people doing this. Um, and yes, I am talking about this kind of metaphysical moment. That's what I keep coming back to. Um, rather than uh, the question of um, can novelists um, or should novelists imagine specific changes uh, to the organisation of the world? Yes, it's interesting as well. I mean, if you look at, uh, I was thinking of maybe nonfiction, and I don't know that you've come across the book, The Mushroom at the End of the World. By yeah, Anna. yeah, I've read that. Yeah, and I'm saying, know, yeah. It's a kind yeah. of... And I guess there's potential for hybrids there as well, aren't there? Of kind of forms yes. interconnecting, and you know this idea of you know connecting everything through the mushroom, and and and, and there are other I think works like that in nonfiction as well. Uh, I can't, I think it's a mushroom, is it? Yeah, Melvin Childrick and Tangled Life. Yeah, yeah. Those perspectives are very rich in that kind of interconnectedness and inter, yeah, and and embeddedness that you kind of talk about. Yeah, yeah. No, you're totally right there, Fergal, in identifying this kind of diversity and creativity in nonfiction. And um, Sheldrake's book was a bestseller. Yeah. So, yeah, so this could be a positive thing. Maybe publishers might start thinking, you know, is there um, an appetite for this in uh, in fiction as well? 
Um, there's also, um, I, I think, uh, a sequel to the Anand Singh uh, book, Mushroom Into the World, written by a colleague of hers. I think it's called um, What Does a Mushroom Live For? It's something it's very similar to that. It just came out. Um, and the opening of that book um, is a really brilliant, pithy, concise um, uh, way of showing the creative possibilities of a less anthropocentric perspective. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we keep, I keep the main obstacle in talking about this is we're talking about huge things such as the nature of time and space and, and species and the nature of life and, and how, to, how to talk about this. Um, but a, a fiction which, you know, looks at um, the fact that humans are inheritors of billions of years of uh, changing life um, and also maybe a fiction that acknowledges that in all the space and time, this right now might be this kind of single, vanishingly fleeting instant of sentient life. Um, and that therefore we have a kind of cosmic as well as earthly responsible to be mindful of this. I mean, I would like to see that interrupting a dinner party in a Julian Barnes novel. You know? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and wh- why, why do we keep buying on about all this stuff? Um yeah, because I, I see this as an alternative in fiction to that hectoring, alarmist, we only have X number of years to change things. Because I think fiction's responsibility, or f- fiction exists in partly to discuss the dominant ideas of the culture. And it's ignoring all of this. That's a problem. Um, it doesn't have to, doesn't have to um, take on these issues in a negative hectoring way. It can explore humans amongst other life forms in a kind of vibrant, wondrous way, and similar to the way that people like um, Cheldrick and Anand Singh are doing in nonfiction. So, yeah, you've really you've helped me get a grip on this, I think, by talking about nonfiction. Um, and I'm sure also, Fergal, there are people doing the kind of stuff I'm hoping to read. I'm just not aware of them. I'm sure there are in other parts of the world um, and maybe in the recesses of science fiction, but... You know, they're ghettoized there and not being reviewed. So I'm not not trying to say this stuff doesn't exist, but it's certainly not being promoted. That's right. Um, it, it does seem to be um, in the minority, and um, and yet, you know, there there are uh, great great novels still emerge. I mean, your your book, uh, your novel is is uh, does uh, really explore some of these issues, and uh, and not in an absolutely not in a hectoring way. You know. Um, it, you know, because yeah, ultimately, I, I suppose you know we're dealing with 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 you know ourselves as well somehow. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, also take a book like The Road, I suppose. You know, by Cormac McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess it's got to. I suppose, in some sense, that and this gets to, I guess, part of the the, the argument that Amitav Ghosh is that you know, how do you eat an elephant? You know, a kind of one bite at a time, or some version of that. You know, that there's this kind of interlinked uh, complexity and scale is is overwhelming, but you can still take a small part of, the, of, of this and deal with that and work on that. And then and also make the interconnections as well. But um, the ambition is to, you know, something that's really going to capture the kind of systemic complexity and that, you know, that's probably a lot to ask. Sometimes you find, maybe find in some more of the, uh, the global south but these other voices that we're not hearing and, yeah. and indigenous people's perspectives exactly. as well mm-hmm. um lots of possibilities but it is interesting to kind of 
uh, chew and gnaw around the, the, the questions of what might be some of the you know issues that, that are holding it back, some of the structural, some of the, the other questions that someone like Amitov Gosh deals with. But how have you found discussing these topics? Uh, presumably you've done a few talks and things like that, and, and people's res- responsiveness to, 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 to your book and uh, some of these themes. A couple of people have, have said that reading an Ascension makes them look at like the fleetingness of their own life and that they felt a sense of, at the same time, a loneliness and a sense of the interconnection with all other life, um, which is really interesting. I was, I was, I thought that was a generous response and encouraged me. Um, other people, I, I guess I've seen, I mean, I try not to read reviews or Goodreads or anything. You, you occasionally do, you know, yeah. and I think, I see responses going into one of one of two camps. It's quite interesting. People um, maybe saying, like maybe like hardcore science fiction fans saying, skip the first thirty pages, which is all about family, and then it gets great. Um, or then you have other people, maybe whose tastes are more mainstream or inverted commas literary, um, saying it's the way that the book begins um, through an investigation of like family and trauma and lineage and inheritance that 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 almost gives them permission to take on the sci-fi stuff the ideas of it to take it on board because it has this kind of um uh, i don't know literary architecture to it so i didn't set out to write a science fiction novel or a literary novel um i just wanted to I mean, I wrote this during COVID, um, and I thought it was a good time to try and write an epic. I was like living alone in a small um, coastal village. I didn't have Wi-Fi, and I thought this is my chance to really, really try and, and go for something, push my interests in human decentering and scale as far as I can go. And taking someone outside of the earth so that they can look at it felt like a natural way of doing that. Um, but it's, it is interesting, and by publishers as well. I mean, I ask them like how are you trying to sell this? It's a science fiction novel and they, they don't like, they, they generally are sort of scared if I, if I say, well, I mean, of course it's a science fiction novel, but it's not published as that. Some people have reviewed it as that. Um, I'm encouraged that people who would never read science fiction are reading my novel. And I'm, re- I'm encouraged also that people who only read science fiction are reading my novel. Um, yes. So I'm trying to straddle those two places. It, it, I mean, it's not going to satisfy everyone um there's maybe there's not enough hard science in it for some people um there's maybe too much for others but i'm I'm basically trying to write something which uh doesn't give like easy reasons to stop reading it you know yeah no right very interesting no I, i was going to ask about um the sense of closure and whether and how you felt about the need to the need to explain things the need to bring things to some kind of satisfactory conclusion, tie things up, and those kind of ideas uh, as against a more open-ended, slightly wondrous kind of perspective. Yeah, I guess I'm interested. Like, did, Which of those two camps did you think the, the book fell into? <laughs> well, a little bit more of the, the, the latter, I suppose, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. But maybe I didn't read it closely enough to, to tie everything up. Yeah, so I'm generally reluctant to tie everything up. And if you think it's open-ended as it is now, then you should have seen it in the first draft, um, Fergal. Because <laughs> it was, <laughs> um, I am resistant to that. I'm, I'm not David Mitchell and Cloud Atlas, who you know, put everything together 
perfectly and neatly because, like, you know, nothing against David Mitchell, but I think there's a kind of lack of fidelity to our experiences in that kind of closure. Um, yes. I do want to leave people with a sense of wonder. There is a kind of concrete kind of meaning to be taken from if one wants that, but I'm happy for readers to um, kind of find their own resolution in it. Um, maybe something I've been guilty of in the past with my endings, the endings of my novels, is um, leaving things too open. So, I mean, my, my editor and I worked through through this a lot in, in Ascension. I basically had to pick an ending because I had several kind of competing endings or interpretations of the end <laughs> in an early draft. Yes. My editor was like, yes. everything that you're saying in the novel before that, is endorsing this particular ending, therefore commit to it at least more than you have. Yes. So I have kind of done that. Yeah. Um, but my my the resolution I've gone with is kind of cyclical and ambiguous. But my God, Fargo, the first draft is a lot more open-ended than it currently is. Yeah. It wasn't in any sense a critique. It's just a bit mm. interesting. This idea of cyclicality and openness yeah, and yeah. continuity and interconnectedness and so forth how can one bring those into your work or and and, and so forth are there interesting questions i suppose that in a way that the ending comes out of nowhere and you're in, in, you know in general when you read a book you think hang on what was that about you know that somehow there have got to be the the foundations somehow that that bring you there as it were it has to be like intuitively um, true to what's come before. And I think as a writer, and my, my younger, more experimental self would be aghast at this, but as a writer, you do have a responsibility to satisfy your reader in, in some sense as they finish your book. Um, in my first novel, which is a kind of missing persons detective story, one of the penultimate chapters is made up of 32 um, competing interpretations of what's happened to the missing person. Um, and I guess that was like slightly opening up on maybe a, a different way of looking at reality now and um, looking at other perspectives. Um, but there's a limit to what you can do um, with that yeah. and still get published by a mainstream publisher. And I do want people to read my work as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, looking, am I happy with how it ended in Ascension? I, I think so, because I mean, I'm going to sound really earnest here, Fergal, but when I'm talking about the less anthropocentric perspectives of potential in fiction, what I'm writing about is things like every, every, every death is a birth. You know, this matter isn't going anywhere. It's becoming something else. Um, as our ancestors, um, going back billions of years, became other things. We are part of this, this huge, incredible, wondrous chain. And that's something I don't want to ignore in my fiction. So the ending is kind of nods at that. Um, but I don't just want to have kind of grand gestures towards that in my fiction. I want to gesture at that when two people are having a conversation or in the way I describe someone eating a meal or, or sitting down. You know, this that's kind of what I'm getting at with the word entangled. So I'm trying to do that in my end, maybe slightly more overtly, but I'm also trying to do it in the way I write sentences, um, the lack of similes that I use, the grammar that I use. Everything should kind of show this humans as part of a continuum that's a, a very good place to maybe uh finish the conversation the dialogue is the, this idea of a continuum that you were talking about i like that the kind of an ending not really being an ending um and 
I think that's maybe a better way of expressing what I meant by human entanglement in the natural world. And you, you asked me about that earlier. Yes. Um, and it's a, it's a hopeful thing, um, looking at our, ourselves as part of a continuum um, and inheritors of many, many kinds of other ways of being alive throughout billions of years of cellular change. And also, um, as a species right now, um, having a responsibility to so many other ways of being alive um, that will that will be t- taken on by our descendants um, across however many billion uh, years, how many billions of years are left. So, yes, yeah, some kind of recognition of ourselves in a continuum right now, but also looking at deep time and the deep future, um, to me is exciting and not hectoring and potentially joyous. And I'd, I'd love, I mean, I'm certainly going to try to find ways of writing that are faithful to this and uh, hopefully reading it as well. That's a wonderful vision, Martin, and um, a wonderful discussion. And thank you so much for your time today. And I wish you the very best with uh, with with uh, people getting in touch with your work and reading in Ascension and your ongoing journey as a writer. But that's been a fascinating discussion. So thank you. No, thank you, Fergal. And thank you so much for having such a generous forum in which um, people can talk about these kind of ideas. If you enjoyed this interview, we recommend you check out Fitzcarraldo Editions, an independent publisher specialising in contemporary fiction and long-form essays. Founded in 2014, it focuses on ambitious, imaginative and innovative writing, both in translation and in the English language. Fitzcarraldo Editions publishes, among other authors, 2015 and 2018 Nobel Prize in Literature laureates Svetlana Aleksevich and Olga Tukarchuk. FitzcarraldoEditions.com Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.